You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So obviously the fifth petition has to do with our debts. So let's dig in. It's question 105, and it asks, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? You'll remember the first three petitions had to do with our duty to God, or the things concerning God, and these last petitions then have to do with us. So what do we pray for in the fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we pray that God, for Christ's sake would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by his grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. That's quite a petition. It asks a lot. It expects a lot, as it should, because God has offered a lot. Of course, it does follow on the heels of the fourth petition. You remember, give us this day our daily bread because of the close connection between them. And there is a connection. We can have no expectation or of blessing or true comfort in this life and in the things of this life unless our sins are forgiven. And that's the connection. So you'll see that word and. It's connecting it with the previous petition. There is no expectation of blessing. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. It doesn't matter how prosperous that house may be in terms of temporal blessings. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous, no matter how small or impoverished that dwelling may be. There is blessing. So you can see the connection here. And it's only insofar as you and I are forgiven and accepted, and that is the idea of justification. You're forgiven in Christ, you're accepted by God because of Christ. As we're forgiven and accepted in Christ, we truly enjoy the good things of this life. And that's important because we cannot enjoy anything apart from Christ, truly. Nothing satisfies. Nothing truly satisfies. And therefore, having petitioned for bread or the things of this world, we ask God to forgive us so that we can actually enjoy the bread that he gives. Now, that's not the only reason we ask for forgiveness, but you can see the connection again. By our debts, and it does say forgive us our debts, we are to understand our sins, whether those sins are of omission, failing to do the things we're required to do, or commission, doing the things that we're forbidden to do, whether that's original sin imputed and inherited from Adam or actual, the things that we've done. Is that, am I hearing something going on? Is that, yeah, let me turn that down. Sorry, Chad. That's a little bit too, there we go. So it means our sins and the guilt associated with them. And again, omission, commission, original or actual, it doesn't matter, all of them, we're asking God to forgive us. And the blood of Christ, thankfully, is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin. 
They're called debts because of the debt of punishment. Every sin, even the least, deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. So we're asking God to relieve us of the punishment that we owe or we're indebted to, to the unyielding justice of God. His justice is strict. It is unyielding. The slightest sin deserves eternal punishment. Please forgive us our debts. That's what we're asking. The wages of sin is death. Every sin, any sin, all sin, death. Misery follows in the wake of every sin. Makes no difference what kind of sin it is. The wages of sin is death. And so when we ask God to forgive us our debts, part of that is relieve us of the punishment that is due. And neither we, ourselves, nor any other creature can make the least, the least satisfaction for that awesome debt. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Any questions on this first slide? Any comments? Calvin? Trespasses. Yeah, forgive us our trespasses. I mean, I think it's somewhat legitimate. I, would, I prefer debts because it's this idea that we are indebted to the justice of God. The trespasses focuses on our transgression, right? Which is true. We want God to forgive us of our sin, our transgression. But the idea of debt also includes this idea of liability to punishment. We don't want to be punished. We deserve to be punished, but we don't want to be punished. So, Lord, forgive us our debts. Right? So, you know, I'm not going to... I think the Methodists typically translate it trespasses. I know occasionally when I would ever be brought to church as a kid, that's what they would say. Trespasses. So, anybody else before we move on? Okay? It's an awesome petition. So, the petition is focused primarily upon the guilt of sin. We are lawbreakers. Not just the punishment, but actually the guilt, the culpability. That we are cosmic criminals, as Sproul would say. It involves both unrighteousness and corruption and shame. All of it. It not only condemns, sin has guilt, which condemns us, but sin also enslaves us, it pollutes us, and it renders us miserable. As I said, um, in the wake of sin, always follows misery, no matter what sin it is, or when it is, or who does it. Always misery. It offers pleasure for a season. The flesh is pleased for a season. But then there comes misery, inevitably. Death is the wages of sin. Most importantly, it finds us guilty, or makes us guilty, and invokes God's dreadful curse. That's the effect of sin. And in every generation, the church is tempted to soft-pedal or de-emphasize the guilt of sin. And we see it in our day all the time. Some highlight the miserable effects of sin because it enslaves the sinner. It strips him of his peace, which is true. There's nothing wrong with talking about the enslavement of sin. But when you emphasize the enslavement to the exclusion of guilt, you're taking away a powerful tool in the evangelism process. 
There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's true. It is enslavement. It is miserable. But it's argued that emphasis upon the guilt of sin might offend those who may otherwise have listened. People don't want to hear about the law of God. People don't want to submit to the authority of God. They're worried about themselves. Well, if I'm enslaved, that is a miserable condition. Okay, I'll listen. But they don't want to hear about the authority of a judge. So the moral law is played down, the criminality of sin is de-emphasized, and the demands of justice are softened. And that's tragic. It is tragic. Because the guilt of sin can never be taken away, and time is no healer when it comes to the debt of sin. You've seen these people, perhaps you've heard reports of men who've turned themselves in 40 years after the crime because their conscience just is plaguing them. And they'd rather go to prison than deal with the effects of their guilty conscience. So time is no healer when it comes to guilt. Sin is often portrayed as an addiction, a disease, a misfortune, a tragedy, or something else that the victim suffers, right? We hear about the addiction of pornography or the addiction of drunkenness or something like that, whereas the Bible looks at the culpability of that and modern psychology looks at the misery that is inflicted upon the victim. So the church teaches that sinners are to be pitied and comforted rather than judged and condemned. Now, we don't want to be judgmental. That's wrong. But we do want to teach that we are condemned outside of Christ. That's very important to understand. So we pray that God would forgive us our debts, not just heal us of our misery. The fifth petition reminds us that sin is first and foremost a criminal act that deserves punishment. Every sin, even the least. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So when, when I sin, I am breaking the law. That is at the heart of this petition. That is where the guilt comes. The self-righteous person, the Pharisee, cannot and will not offer this petition in good conscience. He's righteous. He doesn't need to offer the fifth petition. So Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Any questions on this particular slide? Any comments? I know we've all seen some of the, the slip of the modern church. We're all tempted. Every church. And I would imagine many times we've been tempted and we've succumbed to temptation, sadly. You're writing, a, a, teaching a lesson or a sermon. You're thinking to yourself, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I better not say that, you know. And we should obey God rather than men. We should fear God rather than men. We're all guilty. John? Even the idea that there could be a judge 
it's, they know that they're, they know they have troubles, but they don't want to hear a judge. Is there a way? Most of the offense is just in the fact itself. Is it, I can't even conceive of a way to act, say it more winsomely, other than by bringing them to maybe an understanding that they would want to act as a judge. Yeah, I mean, this is the offense of the gospel, right? I mean, and, and our, this conversation we're having is just a perfect example that I'm tempted as everyone. How can I get this across without being so harsh? That's the offense of the gospel. Look at the cross. It shows what sin deserves. It shows what God was willing to do to his own son to deal with sin. So we declare the justice of God. And at the same time, following it, we declare the mercy and grace of God. That's where it comes in. It's not how nice we are. This is something that I've struggled with. Oh, I just want to be nice in presenting this to somebody. Well, you can be as nice as you want. The truth is, you're a sinner, a criminal, deserving of eternal punishment. Here's the offer of salvation. Here are the terms, right? It's difficult. It's very difficult, especially when it's a friend or a family member, right? Very difficult. But the truth is, this is who you are. This is what God has done in Christ, and this is what he's offering to you. And as a follow-up question, you bring up family members. How, what is an effective way to do this? What, what do you do with, say, family members or friends or, or neighbors? So I'm a Christian, but, but then as you talk with them, you're realizing they're believing more of a moral security piece and more of a God helps me in this life and gets rid of my misery. Perhaps the best way is just to read the scripture. I'm not sure how else to do it. And this is not my word, brother. This is what God is saying. Sin is lawlessness, right? Let's, let's talk about that. Um, and again, in your context with each individual family member, it might be different. But that, that's probably the best way. Just the word of God will have an effect. Don't argue with me. This is what God said, not me, you know. So bring out the Bible, open it up. There it is, you know. Anybody else? For, oh, Melissa. Sharing a testimony, yeah. Sharing the testimony is always helpful. Right. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, sharing the gospel as you give the testimony is a helpful way to do it. Mm -hmm. Come and hear what God has done for my soul, Psalm 66, right? So we have ample biblical evidence of the testimony. When we petition God, we petition him to forgive because he alone has authority to do so. We're asking God to forgive us. Nobody else. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression. He alone has the authority to forgive our debts. Remember that situation in which Jesus, I think it was a, a lame man, and he comes before him, and the first thing he says was, well, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody around him are like, what? what's he talking about? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood. And of course, he was God. So God alone can forgive. And the fountain from which pardon flows is his rich, abundant mercy. And this is where I distinguish between mercy and grace. Mercy is relieving us of what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. 
They're both important. And sometimes we use grace as the overarching term for all of it. We're saved by grace. But this idea that mercy is, he is withholding what we deserve. He's forgiving us and he's passing over because of Christ. And so we ask God to freely pardon our sins, which means to acquit us of both guilt and punishment, as we said earlier. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, why? He might be just, he's a just God, unyielding justice, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can you justify the ungodly? Isn't that calling evil good and good evil? Isn't that passing an unjust sentence? No, because Christ satisfied justice. So he can be just, sin is punished, somebody's got to die, and he can justify the ungodly because his mercy wants to forgive. It's a marvelous thing. And so God's strict, unyielding justice forbids passing an unjust sentence or justifying sinners without basis. He can't do it. He can't deny himself. It demands punishment for sin. And unless his justice is satisfied, his moral government collapses. He would deny himself. If God did not punish sin, he'd be denying himself and he'd no longer be God, which is impossible. It's an absurd statement. So justice has to be satisfied. Mercy would not allow him to leave elect sinners to suffer the punishment they deserve. The bowels of his mercy refuse to let the elect suffer. So what's he going to do? There's an apparent dilemma. Justice wants to be satisfied. Mercy wants to be extended. The only possible way to save sinners then was through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ received by faith. And that's the gospel. It's an amazing thing. Nobody could have ever figured that out. The infinite wisdom of God. The eternal son of God becoming a man so that he could die. That's amazing. That's the mystery of mysteries. So we ask God to do this, to pardon us, to accept us for Christ's sake, because justice could not be satisfied without sacrifice, without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. Blood has to be shed. And you remember that amazing scene where Abram's required to uh, sever the animals and lay them out. And he goes to sleep, or he's put to sleep, and then God in the smoking fire pot and the torch, flaming torch, goes through those slain animals. Meaning that if this covenant is broken, may this happen to me. And of course, earlier he had said, Abram, if anybody curses you, I'll curse them. And if anybody blesses you, I'll bless them. Well, here's this covenant made with a sinner. So Abram's going to be a, sin a sinner. God has to curse a sinner. He's got to curse Abraham, but if he curses Abraham, he's got to curse himself. So he rectifies the situation by saying, this is going to happen to me. <clears throat> this is going to happen to me. Excuse me. It's an amazing thing, amazing demonstration. <clears throat> and so we understand that it's only through the obedience and the sacrifice of Christ, <clears throat> apprehended and applied by faith, 
that this petition comes into fruition. Any questions or comments at this point? Okay? Now, it is important, and this is important in our generation, so important, to distinguish between the feeling and the fact of guilt. <clears throat> the feeling of guilt is a subjective impression that we have done something wrong. You feel guilty. It can be either true, that feeling can be based on fact, or it can be false, it can be based on fiction, false guilt. The fact of guilt is the objective reality of the sinner's relationship to God. You are guilty regardless of how you feel. So you see the difference between feeling and fact. One's subjective, one's objective. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. There is the objective fact of guilt. You've sinned, you've broken the law of God, you're a cosmic traitor, and you need to be punished. And so most people today think that by getting rid of the feeling of guilt, nothing more needs to be done. As long as I feel good, right? Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. Now what does that mean? It means I don't, I don't need the guilt. What are you talking about? I'm feeling pretty good today. I've gone down to the temple. I've sacrificed the bull. I'm feeling great. No big deal. Fools mock at the guilt offering. I haven't, I haven't sacrificed the bull. Pardon me. It may be possible to temporarily remove the feeling of guilt by various methods or techniques. Psychology has developed various techniques that they can help us feel better about ourselves. Right? You can accept yourself, just who you are. You can feel good about yourself. You need to love yourself. Free expression. The fact of guilt, though, cannot be removed by anything but the application of Christ's blood to the soul. So even temporarily, one might feel less guilty. The fact of guilt cannot be taken away. And if he dies in that condition, he'll be awfully surprised. A sinner can become so hardened that he's able to suppress almost all sense of objective guilt. That's a dangerous place to be in. A seared conscience. To understand the objective fact of guilt, regardless of how I feel, is important because then it drives me to Christ as the only acceptable sacrifice. And it's only at that point with the hardened sinner that if the Spirit softens the hard heart, thaws the cold heart, he'll repent. But if the Spirit doesn't do that, there's no repentance. And that's why we have to pray for our loved ones, right? We pray for them. That's all we can do. Pray that the Spirit will be working in their hearts. Pray that the Spirit convicts them, drives them out of themselves, and draws them unto Christ. Every, guilt, every sinner is guilty of both original sin, there is this imputed guilt from Adam, our father, and actual sin, personal, actualized guilt. We're all guilty. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. In Adam, we sinned. You and I were there in the garden. We sinned. That's what it means. You're telling me, oh, I never knew Adam. I never even met the man. Well, that may be true, but God put him as a representative, and you were there in Adam. And you're guilty, and you're corrupt, and you're unrighteous, just like I am. 
And you need a savior. Any questions on this one? Okay. Oh, Carolyn? Yeah. That's right. Uh huh. Baha'i religion, yeah. But what was so evident was there was no, no remedy for his people. Right. Right. No remedy for guilt in any other religion. And it's all based, you know, it's all based on true love. Right. Right. There was a World's Fair. I think I've used this before in sermons, but there was a World Fair in the 19th century. And uh, at that time, they had on the stage all the representatives of the major world religions. They were all on a stage. And they were given opportunities one by one to get up and talk about their religion. Baha'i, you know, Islam, whatever. And so what the, the Christian representative <clears throat> was positioned last because they figured, well, everybody's heard about this. So... All these guys got up and gave their various representations. And so finally, the Christian guy gets up, Dr. So-and-so. People started leaving their seats because they figured, well, we've heard this before. Who wants to listen to this? And he gets up there and he says something like, "Um, you've heard of Lady Macbeth. How do you get rid of the spots on Lady Macbeth's hands? You remember the story? They killed the king and she was up all night washing her hands over and over again because of the stains of guilt on her hands. And so he tells the story of Lady Macbeth, and he talks about the stains of guilt, and then he goes one by one on the men on the stage. Can your religion solve Lady Macbeth's spots? Can your religion cleanse her hands? Down he went, and nobody could answer him. People started coming back to their seats. (laughs) And then he explained the gospel. The blood of Christ could cleanse Lady Macbeth's hands. It was incredible, just like you're saying. Yeah. What a great story. Okay, uh, the forgiveness of debts is the fruit of God's free sovereign grace in the broad sense of the term. He did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice. And yet God accepts the satisfaction. It's free grace, but Christ had to obey. Christ had to die. You're saying, well, that's not free to him. No. But it is gracious because God accepts the satisfaction for our sins from a mediator. He didn't have to. He could have demanded this from you and me. He was willing to accept it from a substitute. And he provided the mediator, his own only son, in order that he might satisfy justice. That's gracious. So it's gracious for him to accept the satisfaction from a substitute. It's gracious that he provided the mediator. And since he requires faith for salvation, you have to apply it to yourself. He gives the Holy Spirit to work in you and me, that faith that embraces Christ. That's gracious. So the whole thing is gracious. 
The forgiveness of sins is of free grace. We did absolutely nothing to receive it. It's all of grace. Both his life and death, his obedience and satisfaction are essential to our salvation, both of them. Because if there was just, if we just received his satisfaction, just his death, let's just talk about that. If it was just his death that we were dealing with, then we would be right back where Adam started in the state of innocency, right? Your sins are forgiven. You have a clean slate, but there's no righteousness. There's no fulfillment of the law. You haven't fulfilled anything. So his active as well as his passive obedience is absolutely necessary. You have to have somebody who not only pays for your sins, but fulfills your obligations. Because you can't do it, I can't do it. Acceptance in God's sight, which is what we want, depends on the perfect fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled the moral law, he fulfilled the Mosaic law, so that both Jew and Gentile can be accepted in God's sight. We absolutely need the passive obedience, the cross, and the act of obedience, the life of Jesus Christ. And that's imputed to you and I and received by faith. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Are you kidding me, Jesus? I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness was being fulfilled. What a wonderful thing that our substitute was able to obey the law in every detail. Securing the right and the title to eternal life. So that you can go to God in prayer and say, forgive me for my debts. Because Jesus fulfilled the law and satisfied justice. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, imputed to him. The full righteousness of Christ is given to you. You're clothed. You have a robe of righteousness. Remember the wedding feast? What are you doing sitting here? Where's your wedding garment? Take them out. Throw them into outer darkness. You have to have the wedding garment. The robe of righteousness. Christ fulfilling the law. Any questions on this one? Okay. Okay, now the end of it. <clears throat> Some misinterpret the final clause of this as we also have forgiven our debt. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, at first glance, that might appear to you as well. I better forgive or God's never going to forgive me, right? Some think that it makes human forgiveness the condition of divine pardon. And what does that end up doing? Well, it puts all the onus upon you. It's not a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of works. You got to forgive. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, deny yourself, forgive so-and-so, because if you don't, boy, you're in trouble, But we say, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Can you forgive? I can't. Unless the Spirit of God is at work in my heart, that is an impossibility for me. I am vindictive by nature. I am selfish and proud and sinful by nature. There is no way 
that if somebody killed my wife or my child, that I'd forgive them without the work of the Holy Spirit. No way. Are grapes, is forgiveness gathered from sinners? No. Human forgiveness is the fruit and the product of God's forgiveness. It happens because God is at work in your life. Insofar as we're willing to forgive our debtors, is what this means, we have evidence that grace is at work in the heart. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, you've helped me. You've renewed me. You've regenerated my soul. You're enabling me to live a Christ-like life. I now have the power and the basis to forgive my brother. Therefore, I have evidence that you have forgiven me. And I'm emboldened to go before you and ask for forgiveness because I see the evidence of grace. No one can truly love and forgive his fellow sinner until the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. And this is our doctrine of total depravity. You and I both affirm this. Uh, Anastasia? Yeah. Right. Right. The question is, how do we balance the emotional feeling that we've actually forgiven, not harboring malice, and actually forgiving? Well, forgiveness is a transaction. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You know, God forgives sinners. It's a transaction. The church gives forgiveness to sinners who repent. It's a transaction. So you forgive others whenever they repent and ask for forgiveness. You can't forgive somebody who refuses to ask you for it. It takes two. It's a transaction. So, you know, these, these things, these terrible tragedies that take place, and the person comes on the TV and he's interviewed and he says, oh, I forgive them. You can't. Because that person has not asked you for forgiveness, has not wanted forgiveness, is repudiating anything you do to your face. What you can do is say, I'm not going to harbor malice in my heart against that person and emotionally ask God to help me not to do that. But the forgiveness itself is an objective transaction. God doesn't forgive a sinner without repentance, right? The church doesn't forgive a sinner without repentance, right? You can't forgive a sinner without repentance, It's a transaction. So the objective nature of forgiveness is such that, yes, I may not feel like it. I mean, Corrie ten Boom tells a story. She was lecturing at a place. You know how she traveled the world and she always spoke. And after after the lecture she gave, up from the aisle comes this man. And the closer he gets, she realizes he's one of the guards from Auschwitz. And he had become a Christian. And he walks up to Corey Ten Boom and he holds out his hand and says, Thank you for your speech. I want you to forgive me, please, for what I've done. Because her father and her sister both died. And she said at that moment, every fiber in her being wanted to skewer him. She had no emotional attachment whatsoever, no feeling of, but she held out her hand and she forgave him. Transaction, right? And the feeling may come later, much later, who knows, but we are required to enact a transaction. 
it's difficult, if not impossible, to govern our feelings. John? Yeah. Lord, please help me not to harbor malice. It's almost, it's very difficult, right? Again, and sometimes you make a little progress, you fall back, it comes back, the memory of it, whatever. But over time, I think it does get much better because the Spirit is at work. John? Uh, I've heard this, I, I think this is quite helpful. I was thinking of, uh, I think it's Romans 12. Uh, uh, pretty much give judgment to do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. For God says, vengeance is by not repay. And thinking... I, I think of the idea of releasing judgment to God. I, I will not, I, I am not the one to carry out my vengeance. I'm not the one, I'm not the judge. God is the judge. Right. And God tells me to do this, so I'm going to obey God and, and pray for it with my enemies and entrust the judgment of what they've done to God. And if anything, pray that God will send them forgiveness right. because he does not delight in that. Yeah, well said, you're right. Overcome evil with good, which again is impossible for a sinner to do, but for a believer it can be possible. And God gives us strength. I, I find it one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Forgiveness, grace, overcoming evil with good. I, I'm not up to the task, I'll be honest with you. I'm not. But Lord willing, he gives me the grace at the time to do what he's expecting me and commanding me to do. What did Augustine say? Command what you will. And give me what I need to do it. It's, it's almost impossible. I mean, it is impossible for sinners to do this. But for believers, we have been given the Spirit. So, when that same servant went out, you remember the story, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He had owed 10,000 talents. And the king forgave him. He owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison. So obviously here we have evidence that this person was never, I mean, the parable is told to show that the evidence of grace is not there. This is what the sinner does. You can give him all the forgiveness or the blessing he wants without grace. And he'll still go out and choke his fellow servant for a pittance. And that's me without the Holy Spirit, sadly. The person unwilling to forgive another shows proof that he himself has not been forgiven by God. That's the idea behind the petition. If we forgive our brother, we have credible evidence that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lord, you've enabled me to forgive. Once again, I've had these daily sins. Please forgive me by your grace and mercy. We're encouraged to confidently ask him to forgive our daily sins because we're his children. And the testimony within ourselves of a forgiving spirit indicates that we've been reconciled to him. It's evidence. That's all it is. It's not conditional. It's evidence. Uh, Seth? Yeah, the question is, the forgiveness we receive from God seems to be less transactional and more a gift. Well, to us it is a gift, but at the cross it was the greatest transaction that's ever taken place, right? There's the transaction. 
Without Christ, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So there's the transaction. And then we apply that to ourselves, and God says, okay, the transaction has been made. But you'll notice that it does say, Jesus tells the Jews, unless you repent, you will die in your sins. Unless you apply to yourselves that transactional virtue, you will die in your sins. Yeah. The cross is the greatest evidence of the transaction in the history of the world. God will not forgive by winking his eye. He'll crush his own son. Jim? I think it says if he repents. I think it says if he repents. Forgive him 70 times 7. You've asked me seven times today for forgiveness. Okay, fine. He's never asked me. I can't give what he won't take. Yeah. Now, I, again, as John, we, that conversation, I'm not to harbor bitterness. I'm not to harbor malice. Very difficult. Very hard. But... We find that if I harbor bitterness, it'll just eat me up, right? So we learn by the Spirit and the Word not to do that. But it does say, I think, and if we double check, if he repents, forgive him. In the act of shedding his blood. Yep. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So as he is making the greatest transaction of all, he's asking God to forgive his persecutors. The only way they can be forgiven is by his death. So yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example, I think. Okay. I think we're almost good. Um, why is it necessary then for us to ask God to forgive our daily sins? We're forgiven supposedly past, present, future. All our sins are supposed to be forgiven at the cross. All of the guilt has been removed, we're told in Romans 8.1. We're declared righteous forever on the basis of Christ's finished work, the transaction that we just discussed. So why do I have to confess and ask for forgiveness for daily sins? Why is that? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I'm not condemned, why am I praying the fifth petition? Well, we both know that we can and daily do commit sins in thought, word, and deed. They destroy our un they don't destroy our union with Christ. That's established, but they can impact our communion with Christ. You know as well as I do, when we sin, that communion is disrupted. We feel guilty. There's that feeling based upon fact. So it doesn't destroy our union with Christ, but it can impact our communion. We don't lose our salvation, but we can lose the sense of assurance. Part of assurance... Oh, John? The idea I mean, awareness, feeling, emotion, all of that kind of in the same bucket... Uh, an awareness, a sense of assurance. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. So we can't lose our salvation, but we can lose a sense of assurance. It'll disrupt our Christian experience. It'll plague our conscience. It'll strip us of our confidence. It'll weaken our resolve. 
That's not saying you're no longer a Christian. You can't fall away, but you can fall down. What's the example? Um, I think it was, I don't know who it was, Spurgeon, Edwards, somebody said, it's sort of like being on a ship crossing the ocean. You can fall down on deck, but you haven't fallen off the ship, right? So you're not going to lose your salvation, but you're falling down in life. And that's one of the reasons we confess daily, ask for forgiveness. We're commanded to seek the Lord's forgiveness on a daily basis, moment by moment, if we confess our sins. Notice the plural. Many sins. If you confess them, he is faithful and just, based upon the transaction at the cross, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the way in which the sincere Christian experiences renewed assurance and refreshed joy. David, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He'd lost the joy. There was no joy in his life. As long as he was impenitent, uphold me with a willing spirit. And then, of course, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. So it's this idea that, yes, we are united to Christ, but this communion is a gentle thing. It's a very fragile flower. And sin will destroy communion. Any questions or comments on that? Oh, Nate? Yeah, Yeah. Just simply, it doesn't really gain them assurance, but it shows them the disunity within their soul. Right. Yeah, this distinction between the objective guilt and the feeling of guilt is very important to understand, I believe. And a lot of false guilt. Christians in the church today experience a lot of false guilt. And it's too bad because it robs them of their joy, you know. And I think the more they understand the gospel itself, the fifth petition, um, the moral law and its application in the life of a believer. It helps them understand this distinction. So pastoral care, I mean, is important here. Pastoral care is you hold their hand, and that's important, but also you expl- explain the truth. Knowledge is power. And in the biblical sense, that means knowledge is assurance. Very important. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great transaction at the cross, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from every and all sin. Thank you for this wonderful forgiveness that you've given to us in him. Help us to daily ask for forgiveness because we know that without the Spirit working in our hearts, we have no hope. Prepare us now for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.